1: I am Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're delighted and honored to have two of our brilliant, smart, savvy, knowledgeable attorneys at the Murthy Law Firm joining me for today's discussion on H 1B cap cases for this coming fiscal year, which is fiscal year 2015, which we're already in the middle of. Uh, my two esteemed colleagues are Adam Rosen, who's a Murthy Law Firm member and has been with the firm for a really long time. I forget exactly how long. Oh, oh, 10 years, he waves at me. And um, has over a dozen years' experience as an immigration lawyer. And then Alyssa Klein, who's the attorney coordinator for the H-1B non-immigrant department, very knowledgeable and bright. Um, So let's sit down, figure out, analyze some issues to help guide you as you make some difficult decisions and understand how best to file your cases. So... We all know what is the cap and what is the cap count, or we think we do. But for those who are new and don't really, really understand what it really means, and for those who have an idea but don't really know what it means, there's an annual limit on the number of H-1B workers, which is set at 65,000, which is considered as the regular cap, because then thanks to the uh, university and the international student advisors, uh, NAFSA, the uh, Association of Foreign Student Advisors, twisting the arm of the USCIS. They added a whole bunch more under the U.S. master's quotas, what we call the master's cap, an extra 20,000 slots. And there's specific restrictions on what kind of master's students from what type of universities are allowed to be part of that 20,000. And then you have a bunch that is kept aside for Chile and Singapore. Uh, to be specific, it's 6,800, but they come out of the general quota. And a person who actually is eligible uh, with a, for a U.S. master's quota can, uh, will be counted first against the general quota and then against the master's quota. So they really get two bites of the apple, as we say. So, Adam, when should the employer plan to file cases? How does all of this timing work?
2: Well, the timing can be tricky, but the cap numbers become available at the beginning of the fiscal year. And so the next fiscal year, which is 20, fiscal year 2015, as you pointed out, Sheila, starts on October 1st of 2014. And so the earliest H-1B start date that you can ask for is October 1st, 2014. But cases can be filed six months in advance of that October 1st, 2014 start date, not any earlier, any earlier than it'll get rejected. So this means that the first day a cap subject petition can be filed with USCIS is April 1st, 2014. Even if the petition is approved before October 1st, the CAP subject petition will not have a validity date that starts before October 1st. So you have to make sure that when you're filing your CAP subject petition on April 1st that you're not requesting a start date earlier than October 1st. If more petitions are received by USCIS than are available from the CAP numbers that you've just described for us Sheila then USCIS is going to conduct a random lottery of all the petitions that they've received within the first five business days in April therefore to ensure your best chance for getting a cap number if there is a lottery cases should be filed this year between April 1st and April 7th 2014 there is no preference for cases that are filed on the 1st or the 2nd versus the the 7th of April All the cases that are received during that initial period are thrown into the lottery and are randomly selected.
1: Right. So that's the first five working days in the month of April. That's why we get up to the 7th, because normally last year it was 1st through 5th, was Monday through Friday. Right. This year it is 2nd through 7th because you have a Saturday and Sunday in the middle. Just so that we're clear, this is only for 2014. It may not apply for another year. If you're listening to this tape for another year other than 2014... On the internet through one and of the And they have
2: places. to be received on one of those five bi- f- their first five business days if, of course, they reach the cap and there's going to be a lottery. If it's sent to USCIS on the fifth business day and doesn't get there until the sixth bu- business day and USCIS says, we reached the cap so we're doing a lottery, it had to have gotten there no later than the fifth business day.
1: Got it. Makes sense. Okay, so I guess it's time if you haven't already started working on your cases, preparing it, contacting the lawyer or file and being ready to file uh, around April 1st to be really, really safe. You really, really need to start moving things along because it takes, as you know, a while to prepare the LCA and all of that. So how should the employer, when should they start Uh, filing and preparing the case, Alyssa, and how long does it take and what's the process?
0: Right now, really, people should be doing this now because, as Adam pointed out, as you said, uh, we have this limit of numbers available. And last year, we did run out Uh, There was a lottery after three years of not having one, and the predictions are that we're going to see the same thing this year. So really should be moving forward now with your cap case, okay, so you can get in on that lottery. Uh, The other thing is there are several steps involved. It's not just, you know, preparing forms and getting it done in one day. Uh, the the longest uh, processing step, which is out of everybody's control, is LCA certification with the Department of Labor's ICERT system, which can actually take up to nine business days. And you have to file with a signed, dated, certified LCA with your petition. If you send it in and you don't have it, that case is going to be sent back. So that's, that's really important to keep in mind. The other thing is... USCIS is is subjecting H-1Bs to substantially greater scrutiny, especially when employees are at third-party sites or working at end-client projects. And so the amount of documentation that's needed to get the H-1B approved is much more and could take time to negotiate with vendors or other parties. Okay, Uh, so what we recommend is that start now, start as soon as possible to get your case um, going so that not only can you file it on time, but file it with sufficient documents for an approval. Sounds great. So, um, you know,
1: we've we've seen that certain employers or certain individuals are not subject to the H-1B cap. So just to quickly go over it with, with you all and you all, some of you may be familiar and some not. A person who has never before been uh, had an H-1B petition approval in the past would generally be subject to this lottery system or the cap as we call it, the quota. Secondly, a person who was previously counted against the quota in the past but has been outside the U.S. for one continuous year or longer may choose either to be counted against the cap for a new full six-year term Uh, In H-1B status. In the alternative, the person may decide to choose the remainder of the six years from the previous petition. But then the risk is if there's only six months or a year left, then and you haven't started or filed a new green card case, you're going to have to leave the country. So um, that's the second uh, person, the second uh, set of people, and the third are physicians who have obtained a J-1 waivers. Who obtained J1 waivers through the Conrad or the interested governmental agency programs, are subge- are not subject to the cap, i.e., they are cap exempt. Um, I know there are employers that are also cap exempt. Adam yes. or Alyssa, would you like to share?
2: Sure. So the so the employers that are cap exempt are a somewhat limited universe. This would include employment at or, or and by a university and their nonprofit affiliates as well as nonprofit and governmental research organizations. So these are research organizations that need to be engaged primarily in basic and or applied research. Now, USCIS is currently reviewing its policy on university affiliations, but USCIS has not yet released their new policy. They have announced that they would give deference to prior determinations made since June 2006 until that new policy is issued. So if there is a um, an institution that has been um, a, a sort of a, an institutional setup that has been um, deemed to be acceptable to be cap exempt then they would continue to recognize it until the new policy is issued it is important to discuss with your attorney these kinds of issues in order to make a determination if the employer is, um, is cap exempt so um, right. the
0: and I was gonna say they've they really came down hard on examining a lot of these employers. Um, so when you do refile, you're saying there has been history. you need to show the the past practice that you've actually had. the employer has been successful. so evidence of prior approvals as cap exempt. So
1: just to be clear, does it sound like they are now trying to? become stricter with university affiliations because they feel like a lot of people have been trying to push that boundary and exploit it and use the ad or buy the university because originally it, I think it was meant only for work at a university, meaning by a university, but then, of course, like good lawyers, all of us pushed, 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 and so the government's probably trying to push back and say, yep, that's what we said in the reg, but now we're trying to revisit that to see if that's... Yeah, they certainly
0: have become more strict in terms of documentation, but then they didn't seem to really take it to the next level and issue that next policy memorandum on on what exactly we're supposed to provide, and it's been a few years now, Okay. And also, I know there's
1: the whole issue about, you know, processing where the petition was approved, but the visa was not
0: yet issued at the consulate. Yeah, this, this also causes some problems because technically, if you have the approval, even if it's for consular processing, a number was utilized out of the quota, but USCS has taken the position that it's not you're not technically counted under the cap if you have not been admitted in H-1B status, such as receiving the I-94 card, or been issued the visa. And we've seen... Practically speaking, we've seen it go both ways. Uh, it is important to talk to the attorney about it and strategize to come up with you know, how you want to approach it, going over the, the pros and the cons of filing as CAP subject versus filing as CAP exempt in this situation.
1: Hmm. Oh,
0: so you're saying this is only for CAP exempt cases that were previously? So if somebody had pre- previously been issued a visa for consular processing and they were filed under the quota, for that particular case, um, then it's not entirely clear. if I remember no
1: years opinion. ago, the consulates would actually send people back saying, oh, no, 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 we can't issue it because the quota was already met. And USCIS came back with some kind of an opinion saying, sorry, we've already counted it and Bill Yates, and I've heard multiple tapes from different conferences uh, where they've said, well, we've probably counted it against the quota. And there's been, I think, one session where I heard a whole one and a half hours just on these issues, so.
2: The problem, Sheila, is because I think of the way the law is written. I've actually spoken with a number of people over the probably the past six months who've had this kind of question um, confront them. And because of the way the law is written just dis- in defining who is or is not counted against the cap, um, it is quite, po- you'd think normally if You might think, at the very least, if they were going to be strict, that in order to be counted against the cap, you'd have to actually be admitted into the United States and have an I-94 card. But the law is written that way. The law is written a little bit looser. It talks about you issued a visa or otherwise granted status, and so if you've got the visa, then that matches with the law. Otherwise granted status is sort of this really broader uh, language in the law that gives us some room to make an argument But that's where, as Alyssa was saying, sometimes you encounter an officer who takes a stricter position as, well, you never even applied for a visa, so you weren't actually counted against the cap. And because there is this language that something beyond just the approval of the petition has to happen, we're going to stake out the position that you, sir, you, ma'am, have not been counted against the cap. So that's why it's not entirely clear that even though you have the approval, since it's for consular processing, you might, if you file a cap petition because you've got this job and you want to come into the United States, that might not, they might come back and say, well, you've not been counted against the cap or, you know.
1: I, it just goes to prove from this discussion that Alyssa Adam and my, I, myself, Sheila Murthy, we three are having how crazy, ridiculous, Uh, Annoying, frustrating and challenging it can be and why working with a knowledgeable good law firm or lawyers can make all the difference in trying to understand or sort through some of these many, many complex issues in H-1B processing. And talking about complex issues, there are many, many criteria that a a employer and employee need to meet in order to be able to obtain the H-1B petition approval. And you have issues like the specialty occupation, so what is a specialty occupation, Alyssa? And everyone thinks they know what a specialty occupation is, but I know there are nuances and subtleties like the discussion that we just had
0: where you get into really strange gray areas. Right, so USCIS needs to see that your position actually to qualify as an H-1B specialty occupation actually requires a bachelor's degree or higher in a specific field of study. It is not enough to require any bachelor's degree in any field of study. It actually has to be a specific field that's directly related to the duties of the position, okay? The other thing where people, um, you know, might get a little confused, it's not, you know, for the job to be a specialty occupation, it's not enough that the person just have a specific degree, that job has to require the degree. So it's really about the position, the requirements of the job, and then showing that that person meets those requirements. Okay? Um, So when you file the H-1B petition, you're going to lay out what your position is, what the duties are, what the required fields of study are to do that job, and then you also take the next step and show that your candidate actually possesses the required education or equivalency at the time you make the filing. Okay? now if they don't have an actual physical diploma at the filing a lot of people file cap cases for people in f1 that are here as students and in that case if you don't have the actual diploma for the student they need to obtain a letter from the school registrar or the dean verifying that they have completed all the requirements for the degree and and you're simply awaiting the physical diploma Mm -hmm. okay and that can be sufficient for your filing okay however if there's outstanding credits or an outstanding thesis if that if they have not completed all the requirements for the degree they cannot use that degree to qualify for the H-1B position okay um, now if you're in that situation or if their US degree is maybe not quite matching up with the position you're offering you can also take a look at, at their other education experience maybe out from outside the country um, get an equivalency to show that you know, perhaps their foreign degree in computer science is equivalent to the right degree for the job, even though maybe they have a US MBA that's not quite on point.
1: Wonderful, wonderful. Oh, boy. Um, so there are subtle gray areas. You can see that there's issues here. We need to make sure it's the foreign degree or the equivalent of the foreign degree, and we actually need that diploma in the hand or prove that all of the coursework has been 100% completed. Um, and there have been times when with even all with all of that, people have seen our request for evidence or even possible denial. So be very careful how you present the information. Again, doing it right will always be worth doing. Do, what did they say? An ounce of prevention is always cheaper than cure. Um, so from the beneficiary's perspective, if the beneficiary believes that she or he qualifies under the U.S. master's quota, What exactly are the criteria? Because, again, there have been lots of RFEs and denials saying it's not a proper master's or you didn't file under the appropriate category. Well,
2: USCIS is cracking down on this issue, and we've seen people have brought to us RFEs, notices of intent to revoke uh, on this issue. Most importantly, to qualify under the U.S. master's cap, you must have earned a master's degree from an accredited nonprofit university. If you're someone whose friend... Or a cousin, or a relative, or buddy, or neighbor got a U.S. Ma- had a U.S. master's degree from a for-profit university and got a cap H one cap subject H one B approved last year. Do not rely on that this year because they are cracking down on this issue. If it is not from an accredited nonprofit university, you don't qualify. So for So, what the is a nonprofit
1: cap. university? Would Harvard and Yale and Stanford be nonprofits? Because I thought they were all very profitable. They're very
2: wealthy, but they're not for profit. Hmm. So, I believe Stratford University is a, uh, a well-known university that is for-profit. It's accredited, and it is a degree that a person can qualify by presenting it for uh, the regular cap, but for if you have a master's degree from a school like that, that is a for-profit institution, it is accredited, so it is an actual degree, you're not going to qualify for the master's cap. And that is an important distinction because if you try to sneak through now and USCIS catches the issue later it can be a serious problem.
1: And we've seen that too, where they've approved it the first time, Yes, sometimes even two or three times for five or six right. years, and then comes back with actually an outright denial or an right. RFE.
2: Now, a beneficiary can also qu- can qualify for the master's cap, even if they're using a credential evaluation or uh, to qualify for the HME position based on their foreign undergraduate degree or work experience um, if they have that U.S. master's degree, even if the U.S. master's degree is not how they're qualifying for the specialty occupation. So you might have, you might have a, an equivalency to a bachelor's degree in computer science, but an MBA degree that qualifies you for the master's cap. Correct. And it is important to make that distinction in your, in your H-1B petition so that you minimize the confusion from the USCIS officer um, looking at your case.
1: That's true. And this is, again, a very common question that people say, well, I'm not using my master's degree. So obviously I can't fill a file under the master's quota. And the answer is wrong. You are still eligible to file under it, even though you're not using that degree at all, as Adam just explained. OK, so the next question that we want to touch uh, upon and discuss with you is what happens if the H-1B employee uh, wants to change status to H-1B in the United States? But the F-1 optional practical training or the L-1 or whatever the other non-immigrant status is, uh, B-1, etc., expires uh, or terminates before the start date of October 1st, 2014, in our example for this coming fiscal year. So the general rule is that the employee um, is able to file the change of status requesting the October 1st start date only if the prior non-immigrant status will continue, that's the general rule, will continue until September 30th of 2014. However, there's an exception, and the only exception is for F1 students, because if you're on a B1, B2, if you're on an L1, you're on O1, any other status, you have to have non-immigrant status till the prior day. But if you're on an F1, then... uh, the student on F1 or on an OPT, which ends prior to the September 30, 2014 date, could be eligible for what's referred to as the automatic cap gap extension, which all became effective from a few years ago, if you remember, under DHS regulations, where the person gets valid status until September 30th simply by filing the H 1B petition on April 1st and the case being accepted for processing, meaning that you are not turned back or your case isn't sent back because you were not selected in the random lottery. And therefore, the four conditions that need to be met are the petition is filed before the expiration of the optional practical training or the end of the grace period. Second, the change of status is requested on the H-1B petition. Third, the October 1st start date is requested. It can be, if you say October 10th, October 15th, October 2nd, it's not gonna work. And the case obviously has to ultimately be eventually approved for the person to be continuing, because if it gets denied earlier, then it stops from that date. So Alyssa, I know there are other conditions.
0: Right, so um, what's important to understand about about gap is that it's really an extension of, of the, your work authorization or, or your status. And, and um, when you are, when your current program ends or your OPT work authorization ends, um, that this sort of kicks in. Um, if your, if the student has a OPT or an unexpired employment authorization document or EAD at the time of filing the CAP case then not only do they get to stay here throughout the adjudication or until October 1, um, but they also get continued work authorization from the end of their EAD card or OPT up through September 30th. So that does mean, though, if the case is not approved by September 30th and it's until October or November, that that work authorization ends on September 30th. Um, Now, if, for example, the person's OPT or EAD expires before you file the petition and it's filed during their 60-day grace period, the person can stay here and work, I'm sorry, can stay here in the U.S. but cannot work. Okay, So they're allowed to physically stay in the U.S. throughout the adjudication of the H-1B, um, but they cannot work in that scenario. Um, now, if the petition is rejected, denied, or revoked, and the individual is in their cap gap period, that, that rejection or denial or revocation will, will cease the, the cap gap extension period. Um, and one thing for the students to keep in mind is, is that uh, what they should do is, is take that receipt notice of the cap case, go to their DSO, um, you know, to get their proof of cap gap extension. In okay. The updated I-20.
1: Thank you very much, Alyssa. And Adam, so what do you what do what do you recommend if a person called us and said, what about travel? I need to travel. My parents are not well, my sister is getting married, you know, a million reasons. And this is your only chance before you start a new job.
2: Well Civis um, strongly re- which is the, the the system that controls uh the student students, and exchange stu- visitors. The stu- F one and system. the J1 students and exchange visitors um, their their status. So Ceva strongly recommends that students don't travel out to the U.S. during the cap gap extension. Um, in general, if there is going to be travel, usually they would need to have an I-20 form that's endorsed for travel. Um, but whether it's student, whether you're whether you're a student or another status, um, USCIS will generally consider a change of status request to be abandoned if the beneficiary leaves the U.S. while the application is pending. So if using your example, Sheila, um, um, earlier where you said if somebody is in L1 status or another status that it takes them to uh, September 30th or beyond October 1st and they've applied for a change of status with an October 1st start date, if they do travel while that, chain, that, petition, that H1B petition is pending and it got in under the cap and there's a change of status requested, um, that change of status will be considered abandoned. And so when the petition is approved, it would only be approved for consular processing. Um, in the case of a student, if the student travels outside the U.S. during their cap gap, um, they will so they'll most likely need to wait abroad to return based on the H-1B and start employment, start their work on October 1st. They are permitted to enter the U.S. up to 10 days before October 1st, but again, w- even though they enter before October 1st, they can't start working until the 1st of October.
1: This is all pretty complex stuff.
2: Yeah, yes, it is. And so, I mean, the short the short end of it is, don't travel especially if you're in status other than H-1B and you want to change your status because that will increase significantly the likelihood that you will be outside of the U.S. waiting um, for your um, for the H-1B to be approved. Or if you're able to get back in with your status that you have, um, you'll have to leave to come back in for, um, for work to start on H-1B.
1: Exactly. And just to, again, stress the point that Adam just made because I think he spoke so fast that some of you may have missed it, the issue about the change of status is deemed abandoned, the petition itself may get approved because I think people just hear abandoned and are denied and it's like you panic. Your petition for H1 may get approved but your change of status with the I-94 card attached to it to the approval notice may not happen. So we come back to the issue of the person then deeming, the USCIS deeming that abandoned, meaning if the person then comes back on the F1, the person will again have to leave the country or file an F, uh, a, a new H-1B amendment to switch that case from F-1 back to H-1B based on the prior approval. It's a little tricky, but can be done.
2: It can be done. And I'll just say, because I, I think I've actually had this question, but if you're in a position where you have to file, you don't want to leave, and the employer will file an H-1B amendment. USCIS will, can look at everything, even the specialty occupation issue, the employer-employee relationship issue, things that we'll discuss a little bit later on um, in this teleconference. But there is no free ride because in an amendment in that situation, simply so because USCIS already approved an H1B petition. Okay,
1: so if the employee is so valuable to the employer, to the to one of you in the company, then just pay for the premium processing, get the approval, then travel, come back on F one and then starting October first, the status changes if the I ninety four card had been attached to the approval notice. Bingo, we got it. Thank you. So let's now jump to the, oh, so we have one more issue. What happens if the student person is not on F1?
2: Well, if the person is not in F1 status and their current, and I talked about this a little bit already, but just sort of to review everything clearly, um, if you're not in F1 status and your status that you hold now ends before October 1st, and you cannot maintain a non-immigrant status until September 30th, then you will not be able to change status to H-1B. You are not eligible for to request a change of status unless the I-94 card you have will take you at least to September 30th. So in in this case the petition should be prepared and requesting approval for consular processing. That means it's being filed without a request for an H-1B I-94 card. The H-1B petition is approved by USCIS for consular processing does not allow you to work in the U.S. immediately, and that means that you will need to leave the U.S. before the end of your current status, apply for the H-1B visa stamp at the consulate based on the H-1 petition approval, and then return to the United States to begin the H-1B employment. As I said before, you can enter the U.S. up to 10 days before October 1st, but you can only start working from October 1st.
1: No wonder they need people need an attorney. This is really ridiculously complex and scary. So scary, and I guess, ultimately, as an employer, you want to make sure that your valued employee that's coming to work on a project either directly for you or for an end client is actually available so that you can continue to stay in business. And talking about costs and fees and the benefit to the employer, Alyssa, as the attorney coordinating the H-1B non-immigrant department at the wonderful prestigious Muthi Law Firm, what are the heck is going on with these crazy fees? Every time I turn around, I feel like it's a couple thousand more here and 500 more there and
0: this and that. right. So, you know, an H-1B cap case is essentially a new H-1B petition. And so you are hit with all of those fees, Sheila, all those crazy fees. You're hit up front like any new H-1B petition. And I'm just going to run through them briefly. And we do recommend that the employer pay for these government filing fees. If you have any questions, again, talk to an attorney. Um, But there's a $325 base filing fee, a $500 anti-fraud fee, um, a training fee, which is going to be either 750 or 1500 depending on the size of the company 25 employees or less you get the lower fee Uh, there's also a two thousand dollar border protection fee uh, if the employer has 50 or more employees and more than 50 percent of those employees are on h1 and l1a slash l1b so you have to total all of those people up Um, now the the two thousand dollar fee is the newest fee and this actually was enacted in 2010 august 2010 Um, the the good news is it's really a one-time fee for the new filings so the two thousand dollar fee and that five hundred fee is when you make your first filing for a specific employee, a new filing. so when you do your first extension you're looking at the three hundred and twenty five and then the training fee, that seven fifty or fifteen hundred. Um now it keeps going so down. So the training though. fee isn't mm-hmm. only one time? The training fee when you you have to pay twice. So, so that, excellent question. Mm-hmm. So when you do your second extension, you're then relieved of that training fee. The other The other uh, situation where you might not have to pay the training fee is if you're filing an amendment but you're not asking for the petition or the state to be extended. So if you get a cap case approved from 2014 to 2017 and say in March of 2015, something changes. You're promoting them or you're moving them to a new project. You want to do an amendment. If you keep that 2017 end date you already have you can file the amendment with just the $325 fee. Good,
1: and I know Alyssa just Mm -hmm. mentioned that it's recommended that the employer Mm -hmm. pay all of the fees payable to the government. Uh, The Department of Labor takes the position that all of the fees, including the employee fee and everything other than possibly personal expenses Mm -hmm. of the individual employee should be paid for by the employer slash company. But USCIS is much more particular and the, the the regulation itself talks about the employer shall pay certain fees. So 100% safe approach is for the employer to pay everything. Right. Right. But if the people who are willing to take a risk say, you know what, I'm willing to pay all of the government fees, but not your personal fees dealing with your change of status. That potentially could work for your family members or your personal change of status
0: and there's also a premium processing there is now those, those are the, just the required fees you can't okay. get around those um, there is an optional premium processing fee and it, basically the two service centers that you file the h1b petitions with they all have premium processing units it's a special you know, group within that office. And when you file something premium processing, you're paying a premium fee. You're paying $1,225. Now, what it does give you, it gives you extraordinarily faster processing times. Once that case is is filed, they're on a 15-day clock to take action. Now, in the case of cap cases, that 15-day clock, you know, is gonna depend on, you know, the lottery and basically everything getting receipted. But in general, it's a 15-day clock From when everything is filed, and then even if there's a request for evidence or a follow-up inquiry on the case by the premium processing unit, once you submit your response to that office, they're back on a 15-day clock. The the other benefit is it is easier to reach out to that office and and communicate with them if you have any questions or concerns about what's going on with your your case. Um, You can reach out directly to that premium processing unit. Um, The other thing is if you're unsure about filing initially with the 1,225, maybe something comes up, like, unexpected travel like Adam was talking about, Sheila was talking about a minute ago, you can always upgrade it to premium processing once you have your receipt. Sure, sure. I know we're always very sensitive to
1: time-related issues. We try to do this between 30 to 45 minutes and we're just past the 30-minute mark already. So we're going to try to clip right along because we know we have some really hot, interesting uh, topics that we still want to discuss with you which, of course, many of you know, IT consulting companies. And sometimes it's peop- the USCIS has been giving a hard time not just to the inf- IT consulting companies, but to uh, hospitals and doctors, what they consider consultants, even if they're not IT-related. Um, but the most common issues that most IT consulting companies are dealing with, which has become a big hot-button issue, since, especially since 2010 or even a little bit before, one, the employer-employee relationship, second, the work location, and three, the end client documents, which must establish a bona fide specialty occupation along with the right of control, et cetera, for the entire validity period requested on the petition. So if I'm going to have both Adam and Alyssa chime in and jump in to start discussing first the employer-employee relationship, and we can move things along because we have a lot to cover in 10 minutes.
2: Uh, Okay, Sheila, well, uh, as many people might know, uh, in January 2010, USCIS effectively changed the standard for processing the H-1B case, requiring employers to show the right to control their H-1B workers, which basically means that simply hiring, firing, paying, and giving benefits is not enough. It is necessary that the employer can show that it will contr- that it will control the the manner and means the way that the work is being done by the employee, and that this control is going to continue for the entire H one B period that's being requested on the petition.
0: Right, and it is up to the employer to provide that that evidence. Adam, the um, the employer needs to show by documents in their petition that their employee is going to be. Uh, you know, sufficiently monitored, controlled, and directed by the employer. This is especially a concern when the employee is at a third-party location. Uh, the the USCAS is looking at numerous factors, some of which include whether or not the employer has the right to assign additional duties to the employee, uh, the extent of the employer's discretion over when and how long and, you know, where the employee will work uh, and, and who provides the instrumentalities and tools needed to perform the job.
1: Wow. And often, I know the USCIS has repeatedly stated that the payment of wages is, in their mind, the least important factor. And uh, we've actually tried to come up uh, while discussing how we could, you know, show this, and I know you guys have discussed this in many of your cases, the kinds of employer-employee documents that should be included. For example, you have inclined letters, you have employment contracts or offer letters or employee handbooks.
2: Is also showing how the beneficiary, the worker, is reporting to the petitioner through emails... Um, weekly phone calls, uh, performance evaluations showing what they've done for other employees if someone's new to the company, uh, documenting the benefits that are provided, whatever, you know, medical, dental, um, and then also listing out the kinds of tools and, and supplies that are given by the employer to the worker.
0: And the employer can also go ahead and show if if they have any proprietary information or products that the beneficiary uses, such as patented or licensed products, trademark products, or any company-specific protocols um, or procedures or manuals that that they follow, this can also be submitted. Uh, Another thing that employers can show is that they provide the necessary training uh, for the employee.
1: Okay. What about work location issues, Adam?
2: Well, USCIS is still asking for that all work sites be identified on the LCA and the the I-129 form when the petition is being filed. So if the employee is going to be working at more than one location, for example, a home office, a client site, other places, the employer is required to provide an itinerary with the H-1B petition. Uh, Generally, the information about the changed locations in a new LCA for new locations cannot be submitted in response to an RFE that USCIS issues on this H-1B petition.
0: And it continues to be a problem even after the approval. So even if you don't get the RFE or you do and it's approved afterwards, um, you're going to come up against possible site visit problems. Um, USCIS has continued to increase this, and uh, every indication shows that they will continue to do so. Um, They have site visits in person. Will they go to the work location indicated on the I-129, or they'll perhaps reach out by email or phone to... You know, to a representative at that site. This is especially problematic um, with you know people who change end clients, who move to different projects. Um, so basically, if the beneficiary's work location is changed. After the petition is pr- is approved, it's strongly recommended that an amended petition be filed, um, rather than just obtaining and relying on a new LCA, because USCIS is not going to have any knowledge of that new LCA or that new work site unless that H one B petition is filed as the amendment.
1: Yeah, it's real crazy. And then the Ncline documents, which are again becoming a big deal, need to establish. <coughs> sorry, a bona fide specialty occupation for the entire validity period requested and we need evidence of the project, for example, in the form of contracts or purchase orders or statements of work, SOWs, and a letter from the client. And if there are mid-vendors involved, then all of the contractual documents relating to the mid-vendors should ideally be submitted.
0: Yeah, they've just continually um, increased their scrutiny on this issue of duration. And and I think as anybody would know who deals with IT consulting, you know, there's usually not a three-year SOW. You're not going to get a three-year task order or purchase order. Um, But, you know, nonetheless, if you're asking for a three-year validity period in H-1, you need to provide evidence that this project, this specialty occupation being offered to the employee is more likely than not going to last for that entire duration. so, like I said, you know, you can you know show contracts or work orders, um, letters uh, from clients and vendors; those can be used in lieu of contracts and work orders. Uh, You could also try some other documentation such as project plans or project timelines to show how long the need is for the employee. Um, And really anything that you you can identify that demonstrates the bona fide specialty occupation at that end client site can be helpful. Um, One thing to also bear in mind is whenever you are submitting contracts, work orders, letters, everything needs to be properly signed and dated.
2: So we underst- we do understand that at times it can be extremely difficult to get the end client contracts because in many cases they're not in the possession of the, the company filing the H one B petition or under their control. So in order to help H uh, one B employers with this issue, Murphy Law Firm has um, in the past and is willing to speak with the mid vendors or end clients if that's necessary to explain USCIS's requirements and the importance of submitting these documents with a petition when it's being filed as opposed to hoping that there's an RFP or thinking that, oh, everything will be fine and I'll just get it at the time there is an RFP. Uh, but filing without the supporting documentation or using alternative documents um, might result in a weak case. And USCIS they might issue a request for evidence and give you that other chance to get that documentation in. Well, or they may not. They may not. They may just decide, you know what, you had your chance. We don't see it at the time of filing, and we're going to deny this petition. Um, and or they may just decide we're going to approve it for less time, and then you get an h petition that maybe is approved for you know a year or, or you know less than you yeah. want.
1: OK, so if we can just continue with the comment that Adam just made, please don't hesitate to use the Murthy Law Firm with uh, your end client or with your mid-vendors by saying that it's not us necessarily, but it's the law firm and the lawyers that absolutely require us to do this and the reason is you need to continue doing business with them and you need to continue your contracts but you also want to get the approval for your h1b employees and you can you know you obviously want to get the approval and you want to keep your uh, clients in good uh, in a good relationship and we're happy to say you know what it's not you it's not us it's the law and that hopefully will make it easier and help you to get the approval for your value Employees, So to increase the chances of success, we need to be monitoring all of the changes. You can see there are a lot of gray areas, a lot of nuances and complexities that both Adam and Alyssa just discussed with you. And on behalf of the Multi Law Firm, our entire team, we would be so honored to continue to help you as you try to figure out all of the complexities of filing a fantastic, strong H-1B petition so that you can obtain an approval. I know our office is absolutely packed with a lot of cases, but we're always eager to help and get you the approvals that you need by working with the best legal team in the world that can help you on U.S. immigration law matters. Thank you once again, and good luck as you process CAP-related cases, and we would love to be your partner as you continue to grow and succeed in challenging and difficult climates. Have a fabulous rest of the day. Thank you.